So your handouts, they, the way they print out, I'm sorry, they, when you open it up, you're going to have to twist it over, and then when you, when you uh, close it, you will have to um, flip it back over, actually, when we get to the, when we get to the back. So this is the, the first session in this sixth class. So I guess it's five. Because it, Peter, are we going to be doing six or are we going to do five? Six? Okay. So I guess there are six. And you can see the topics. It's on the, on the back cover. Um, you'll see those listed there. So week one, that's tonight. God's purpose for wealth. And we're not going to be getting into the specific details of of anyone's budget or asset allocation, but we will be discussing specific biblical principles on money and possessions. So the way our discussion here this evening is structured, we're going to have an introduction. It's going to be a, somewhat of a longer introduction that has some, some points within, and then that'll lead us up to our main three points. And our main idea is God owns everything, so we can focus on our heart, our how, and our home. God owns everything, so we can focus on our heart, our how, and our home. And we're going to start by looking looking at a parable Jesus told in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. So if you could turn your Bibles to Matthew 25, 14 to 30. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 880. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey immediately. The man who had received the five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man who, the man with two earned, with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man. Reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master replied to him, you evil, 
lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, to review here, Jesus tells, of a, tells a story of a master who went on a journey and entrusted very amount, various amounts of money to each of his three servants according to his ability. The first received five talents, the second two talents, and the third one talent. What's a talent? For me, it was something hard to relate to, something that was just abstract. So in current day forms, in terms of the currency that we use, as far as I'm aware, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, if someone's more aware, um, but a talent is approximately the equivalent of $600,000. 20 years. 20 years. So I think that's where I had come up with that. I think it was based on maybe $15 an hour multiplied by, by that amount. So the first had received around $3 million. The second, about 1.2, and the third, 600000 so when the master returned from his journey, he called each servant to give an account for how they used his money. The first two servants doubled what, um, what they had been given. And in response, the master commended their faithfulness and called them good, granting them more responsibility and, as it says, a share in his happiness. But the third servant was lazy and wicked and hid the money in a hole in the ground. And in response, the master rebuked him, took back his money, and sent him out of the house. This parable is a great way for us to begin thinking about our money and our worldly possessions, as we'll be calling here this evening wealth. We'll be referring to it as wealth in this class. So we'll be using the parable for our discussion as we consider the master and the servants and their stewardship. And we're going to be referring to some Bible verses. So I'm going to need 10 volunteers when called to be able to refer to these verses. If you feel comfortable reading verses aloud, um, raise your hand and I will assign you some verses. Okay, PJ, could you... um, Read Psalm 24, 1 to 2 okay. when we get there. Okay. Next volunteer, Aaron, could you read 1 Timothy 4 and 5? Next volunteer, Ruby, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Next volunteer, John E., 1 Timothy 6, 7. Next volunteer, 
Hannah, Romans 14, 12. Next volunteer. Some of you may need to do double. Okay. PJ, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Royce, 1 Peter 4, 10. Next volunteer, Patricia, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Next volunteer, Tia, Matthew 6.19-21. And we have one more. Was that your hand raising? No? Oh, you're just waving. John? Um... Colossians three seventeen. Okay, thank you guys. I'll let you know when we get there. Or I'll call out your your verse as well. Okay. So if you're following along in your handouts, are right there under the introduction, the Master God. So while not everything in Jesus's parables stands for something else, the master does represent God, because God is over everything. And a proper understanding of wealth begins with understanding this relationship, begins with God and his relationship to his creation. Does someone have a pencil? Or pencil. Thank you, brother. Sick and tired of you. <laughs> you might be wondering, what right do I have to break poor Royce's pencil? <laughs> the truth is, I'd planted this pencil prior. So knowing that this is my pencil changes everything, right? If I own it, which I think one of our kids owned it, (laughs) I choose to do with it what I want. So let's look a little bit closer at this truth that God owns everything. He's the owner of all worldly wealth because he created all things, Genesis 1. And because he created all things, he also has a claim on all that he created. David writes in Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2, PJ. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the, on the rivers. Now, when God created everything, what did he call it? He called it good, thereby assigning value or wealth to his creation. Now, when sin entered the world, did it destroy the goodness of wealth? No. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy 4 and 5. Aaron? 1 Timothy. 
They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and not know and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. Thank you. So, in fact, the enjoyment of wealth can bring glory to God. And here's what Paul says a couple chapter later, chapters later in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Ruby? Instruct, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So there, side by side, we see that God gives us wealth for our enjoyment, but that we should not put our hope in this wealth. And some Christians applaud this idea of living in poverty, in, in, in poverty and following an ascetic lifestyle that forgoes wealth and pleasure, thinking that this form of suffering atones for sin and builds, and when it actually builds, self-reliance and turns away, turns this individual away from God's grace. Self-denial can be just as self-serving as wealth itself. So it would be like going over to a friend's house and having them make this really nice steak dinner before you. The ascetic sees the meal as excessive, thinking hamburgers would be much more reasonable. And the ascetic refuses to eat it. He thinks this will make himself look good in front of his friend. But instead, as you guys are thinking, it's actually offensive. He wasn't thankful. And he didn't eat this nice meal that had been prepared for him. On the other hand, the one that practices biblical self-denial is thankful for the steak meal and partakes of it but isn't a glutton and only eats what has been given to him. And to this, the friend who made the steak dinner is actually pleased. So the bottom line, God owns everything. He owes nothing. All that he made is good, and that includes our wealth, or I guess his wealth, the wealth that he's entrusted to us. So the secret to managing... Money, well, is not to run away from it, but to submit it to the Lordship of Christ. So if you, again, following along in your, your handouts, we're going to be there on A2. God gives people their wealth. If God owns all the world's wealth, that means he's the one that assigns it and gives it to us just like the master did with the servants in the parable. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do we have that we did not receive? And this wealth extends outside of money, credentials, diploma, job, family, church. And the master gave different amounts of money to to each servant. And God gives each lot in life. First Samuel 2, 7 says, The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles 
and he exalts. The important thing is how we steward what God has given us. So you can turn to the inside cover of your handouts. You have to flip it over. Um, And we're going to be looking at the servants now. So we see that God is the master, and that makes us the servants. And if he's the master, that makes us stewards when it comes to the wealth that we possess. In all that we'll be discussing today, I think the most difficult idea to wrap our heads and hearts around is this concept, this understanding that we don't own what we own. The, po- the car that you paid off last month, it's not yours. The diploma on your wall, not yours. The phone in your purse or in your pocket or in your hand right now, not yours. The money in your bank account, not yours, not yours, not yours. Let's see if you can recognize this hymn that addresses this idea. The shoes on my feet, I've bought it. The clothes I'm wearing, I've bought it. The rock I'm rocking, I've bought it. Because I depend on me if I want it. The watch you're wearing, I'll buy it. The house I live in, I've bought it. The car I'm driving, I've bought it. I depend on me, I depend on me. All the women who are independent, throw your hands up at me. All the honeys who make money, throw your hands up at me. So we recognize this tune from Destiny's Child, don't we? And in our sinful nature, we don't like to admit that our things aren't actually our things. Instead, we're inclined to say, I bought it, I earned it, so it's mine. Don't tell me what to do with it. But if we agree with Scripture, which we do, we believe it's inerrant, we understand that everything belongs ultimately to God. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper gives an illustration about someone who walks into a museum empty-handed. As he walks into the rooms, he takes the pictures and paintings off the wall and puts them underneath his arm. And when he's asked... What are you doing? He replies, I'm becoming an art collector. But those pictures aren't yours. So the person replies, sure, they're mine. I've got them under my arm. We think that mentality just sounds ridiculous. And yet, isn't that the way we so often operate? Everything we have is God's. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. Thank you. So it's a big reason why people don't want to follow God, including the rich ruler who went away sad in Luke 18. They don't want to submit their wealth or lives to God's lordship. But when we realize that our wealth actually isn't our wealth, it's actually freeing. We're free from being selfish 
Because our wealth isn't ours. It's God's. It frees us to be generous. It frees us from the idolatry of materialism. It frees us from our financial circumstances even. I'm going to read an excerpt from Randy Alcorn's Managing God's Money that I talked about earlier. About ownership and how it all belongs to God. A distraught man frantically rode his horse up to John Wesley, shouting, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. Weighing the news for the moment, Wesley replied, No, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. We might say, Get real. But Wesley's reaction didn't stem from a denial of reality. Rather, it sprang from life's most basic reality, that God is the owner of all things, and we are simply stewards. So if you're following along, we're only stewards of what we've been given. A steward is someone that's been entrusted with another's wealth and charged with the responsibility of managing it at the owner's best interest. So for stewards of all the wealth that we've received, how does this change our view of our bank accounts, our cars, our homes, and any other worldly possessions? Well... They're not to be used for our sole purpose, but God's. As we just read in the story, we'll be held accountable for how we use our master's wealth. Hannah, Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Thank you. We must justify how we use all of our wealth, not just what we give to our church, but how we spend this, this wealth on ourselves. Because getting wealthy isn't an end in itself. Poor stewardship is evidence of no faith. We've distinguished between the master and the servants in our beginning parable. So let's look at the difference between the two types of servants. What did the unfaithful servant do that was lazy and wicked? What was so lazy and wicked? What, was, what, what did he physically do? What was he accused of? He buried his talents. He hid some money in the ground. And what was the consequence for this? Is he, called, is he now called least in the kingdom of heaven? Where was he thrown? Yeah, into darkness into hell. Doesn't it seem like a steep consequence for bearing some money? So what's going on here? The faithful servants trusted that the master would return as he said that he would. So they risked everything based on his promise and they didn't hold back. They didn't they didn't, they didn't hold back. But the unfaithful servant, this guy played it safe. He thought that the master may not return as he had promised, or maybe he wouldn't, maybe faithfulness wouldn't be rewarded. 
But based on this assessment, he played a risk, and he lost dearly. He buried the talent and did other things with his time. The faithful servants trusted their master's word and his goodness, and the unfaithful servant had faith in neither. And as Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. You may think that you can play both sides and please both masters, but in the end, your desire to, to, do, to do this shows that you actually have no faith in God. You've made your decision. And in this story, it's showing that this guy was not a Christian. So we learn from the unfaithful servant that what you do with your money is an indication of whether or not you have saving faith, faith in his promises, faith in his goodness. This parable isn't about being a good or even a mediocre Christian, as if those were categories that exist. It's actually the difference between heaven and hell. So if this is what it means, and this is what it looks like to be a poor steward, we're going to spend the remainder of our time looking at what it means to be a faithful steward. So going back to our main idea, that was a long introduction to get to our main point, and now we have three points underneath this, this main idea. So God owns everything, so we can focus on our heart, our how, and home. So point number one, God owns everything, so we can focus on our heart. In the parable, why were the two servants commended as good and faithful? Like PJ talked about at last week's Sunday morning gathering, they obeyed or followed quickly and completely. They thought highly of their master. They were productive. They took risks, and that required faith. They received profitable returns in response, and they were actually patient until the master returned. So being a faithful steward is using wealth in the manner that God would have us. But why should we do this? What is the motive for faithfulness and stewardship? Let's go over two. The first has to do with the God we serve. God didn't merely teach us what to do with our wealth. He actually showed us in love. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Thank you. In love, Jesus humbled himself as a suffering servant. He obeyed the Father perfectly, died on a cross, on a cross so his people would share in his inheritance. His wealth was spent to make us wealthy. And this ought to compel us to focus on Christ. The mark of one forgiven by Christ is love of God. And love for God certainly includes a desire to use our money to please Him. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Brother Royce, First Peter 4.10 Just as each one has received a gift, 
Use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Second reason for faithfulness in stewardship has to do with final judgment. In, the, in, in this parable, the master returned one day to settle his accounts with the servants. And, in, and very similarly, we await the day when um, known as, known as our, our judgment day. As Christians, we're forgiven of our sins and we're promised eternal life. But scripture says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Second Corinthians 5.10 What we do on earth still has implications for gaining rewards in heaven or losing those rewards. A man reaps what he sows. So does that factor into our financial decisions at all? It should. When do we expect Christ to return? We should all be responding today. And are we ready to give an account for our master's wealth? So, God owns everything, so point number one, God owns everything so we can focus on our heart, and point number two, God owns everything so we can focus on our how. So God just doesn't provide motivation. He also sets the terms for how we should use the wealth that's been entrusted to us. And Proverbs is full of this counsel. We're to be diligent and not lazy, wise, not foolish, humble, not proud, generous, not stingy, honest, not deceitful, righteous, and not sinful. I'm sorry, yeah, righteous, not sinful. We're to seek counsel, practice self-denial, and trust in God. Now, if God regulates wealth, he must have a purpose for doing so, right? And that purpose is to glorify himself. So how do we do this? And this is what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Thank you. A godly attitude towards our wealth speaks to the God, speaks a lot about who our God is. What we do with our money is a testimony to what kind of God that we serve. For example, when we thank God for what we receive, we glorify God as the giver of all things. When we give back the first fruits, we glorify God as being trustworthy. When we're content with our wealth, we glorify God as being sufficient to meet our needs. When we use our wealth sacrificially to help others, we glorify God as being loving and merciful. So to be a faithful steward, we must use our wealth for the purpose of glorifying God, to exalt his name, and using this wealth to spread his good news. And here are some practical examples of how someone might consider doing this. And an obvious way is giving to the church, to support her ministries, support of pastors, or in our case, our pastor. But our church offerings aren't all that God looks at. 
It can be far more radical than that. We can give our ride, we can use our cars to help people move, give them rides to and from church services, gatherings. We can use our homes to extend hospitality, gospelize. We can use our money to supply another's needs, knowing that they're not going to be able to pay us back or not expecting them to pay us back. Needs are continuing to rise in the church. PJ just um, told us about one today with Darren. There's a lot of ways, tons of ways, that we can glorify God with our wealth. And God gives us a lot of liberty. We can have a lot of creativity in how we choose to do this. So consider this. How is God calling you to use, invest his wealth? So point number one, God owns everything so we can focus on our heart. Point number two, God owns everything so we can focus on our how. And our third and final point, God owns everything so we can focus on our home. This isn't the home we're all looking forward to going to in a few hours. It's our eternal home. This is the home we're referring to right now. The earth is not our home, and we consistently need to be reminded of this, of this truth. For us believers, our best life isn't meant to live now. We forget this. But remember that about our eternal home, that we are not citizens here. If we shift our minds to think that this isn't our home, that hopefully will overflow into what we value here and how we choose to spend our wealth, be it money, time, our resources. In our parable, the faithful servants were productive with the wealth that was entrusted to them. And they earned a profit. In the same way, God is also glorified when we pursue profitable returns. However, God's value system is very different from the world's. What is valuable in his economy? Well, let me leave you with three thoughts as we focus on our eternal home. So, subpoint letter A. Invest in real value today. Every time we spend money, whether it's shopping for clothes, shoes, um, technology, food, you name it, there's always an opportunity cost associated with it. Meaning we could have spent the money, we could have chosen to use the money for something else. And it's this comparison shopping that God wants us to take seriously. And some things we can do with our money are worth more today than perhaps other things might be. There in your notes, you see um, a lot of comparisons made to wealth, which Proverbs point out. It's there on the back. No. I'm sorry. Yeah, on the inside... um, on the inside of your, your handouts, bottom right-hand corner. Wisdom is greater than rubies. Fear of God is greater than wealth. Righteousness is greater than money. Good reputation is greater than riches. Faith in God is greater than gold. Salvation is greater than gaining the whole world. Now, obviously, money can't purchase salvation, and it can't buy faith or hope or love, but it can certainly be used to build 
these up and exercise them. And this is what the widow understood in Mark 12, 41 to 44, when she gave her two coins into the temple treasury, all she had to live on. She used her money cheerfully to grow in faith in God, and this brings God glory. So invest in our eternal home, in building and encouraging other believers, supporting the work of missions. These are things of real value that have ripple effects for eternity. So when you give money to someone, knowing that they're not going to pay you back, you're using your money to build faith and set your priorities straight. When you use your car for his glory, for a ride or, or whatever, moving as we've had those needs in our church, you're using your money to help them gain God's word. Well, I guess getting them to a gathering, that is. And in God's economy, that's a smart transaction. Make smart transactions. Investments into our eternal home. That's what matters. So underneath our third point, letter B, focus on the future. We're in the home stretch. We're on the back of your handouts now. Beyond investing in real value today, God also calls us to think about the future. After all, the, the, those, those reasons out of, for those things that I mentioned, faith, relationships, God's word are valuable. The reason those things are valuable is that unlike your money and your car, they will be of value in heaven. The fact is that our worldly wealth is fleeting. Proverbs says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. John D. Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. After he died, someone asked his accountant, How much money did John D. leave? The reply was classic. He left all of it. You can't take any of it with you. If you're going to take one verse away from this evening and meditate on it from our time together tonight. Let it be what Jesus says in Matthew six nineteen to 21. Actually, let's all turn our Bibles there and then we'll have Tia. Sorry, it looks like I wrote TR here. I was like, who's TR? <laughs> That's why I was looking funny. So Matthew six nineteen to 21. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Thank you. So picture a hearse at a funeral. You know, that vehicle, that long, that strange-looking vehicle that carries the, the casket of the deceased. Have you ever seen one with a... Hitched, hitched up with a trailer behind it? 
So while you can't take it with you, you can send it on ahead, believe it or not. What would you do now if you saw on the news that 10 days from now, the U.S. dollar would be abandoned as our currency and we'd be um, adopting a new currency? Let's say um, Bitcoin, British pound. Let's say British pound because that's what I have here in my notes. You'd convert all you had into British currency, wouldn't you? Like now. You'd abandon what is about to lose value and invest in what will maintain value. Well, Jesus has told us this is precisely what will happen, right? Thea just read it. Sometime in the next century, every single dollar that you own will become worthless to you. Why? Because, well, I don't know if, maybe, unless maybe read or maybe some of the younger ones live that long. But the majority of us, right, won't be here. Or Jesus has come back. But you have an opportunity now to invest in an eternal treasure that will never lose value. But what we do with our wealth is more than just an indicator. It's a determiner. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How you end up using your wealth will lead your heart into good or into ill. So you have to use your imagination here, but if I were to invest in Krispy Kreme stock, I'm going to naturally have concern for how the company is doing. I just might even need to visit there more frequently. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So consider this. Where is your treasure? So the second way we can spend our money in a way that pleases God, with our eyes focused on the future. Focus on a time when money is no more. And point three C, maximize returns. We don't just want to earn some profitable returns on wealth, on our wealth. God wants us to maximize those returns. Colossians three seventeen. And whatever you do, in word or in deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our lives should be maximized for the glory of God. God still has the bottom line of you, the bottom line of his glory, and he promises to bless those who trust him by using his wealth for his purposes. And just like the faithful stewards In our parable, we are called to put all of our eggs in one basket, to risk everything on God's promise that he will indeed return, knowing that he will reward those who have lived with faith in him. And our finances finances should be an evidence of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are to be pitied more than all men. You may be familiar with this this quote from the martyred missionary Jim Elliott, who once said, 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There is nothing like investing in heaven-backed securities. So to conclude, God owns everything so we can focus on our heart, our how, and our eternal home. God owns everything, and all that we have from him is stewardship. Let's seek to be faithful stewards by using our wealth for God's glory.